if a file is code, then you can have the same type of code reviews that you would have on code, but done for access, right? So for example, I need access to a GitHub repository. I'm going to add my name to a file and then whoever's responsible for approving that will get the pull request and will approve it. And then my access is going to be provisioned. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Guillaume Ross, head of security at Fleet, who delivers open source awesomeness to manage OS query. He's also a former CISO at a fintech company where he had the privilege of creating a completely greenfield security program. What would you do if you could build your program truly from scratch? What Guillaume did was innovative and bold and far beyond what I would have thought to do. I wanted him to come on the show to share his story because I think your minds will be as blown as mine was. Some of this stuff is so outside of the normal box and yet makes such perfect sense. So Guillaume, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Hey, how are you doing tonight? I am doing well, sir, and thank you for asking. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. So briefly, why don't you tell us a bit about your background in cyber and a little bit about your day job? Yeah, so my my background in cyber is essentially I started working in IT at a pretty young age. You know, my first job was uh, actually working in the help desk for uh, RBC. I was uh, 17 back then, so uh, I couldn't participate in the office group lottery because that was illegal. And (laughs) I was interested in security, but I didn't even know it was a specialty or that you could work in security. I just thought that, oh. You know, people who work in IT or developers in a bank, they have to be awesome at security, right? Uh, And that was kind of when I met the real world. And over the next few years after that, I started doing more and more IT projects, a lot of Active Directory. And you know how Active Directory is related to authentication and all that. And slowly but surely, started working only on security projects. And then, you know, one day I, I just realized that I was actually a security professional at that point and not really just an IT person anymore. But it wasn't really a conscious decision. It just happened like that. I guess it's just because I like to build things that are nice and security is one facet of quality and it just happened like that. I love it. I love it. So it, it the, the, the accidental security guru. <laughs> well, pretty much. I mean, it, it is a subset of IT in, in many regards, right? But except when you start digging into security, it's also an extremely wide field that you, you could never know everything about it. But I think it makes sense to start with development or IT and then move into security. And in the teams I've had in the past, I actually had a lot of security people that started as IT or as developers, and they, they make for great security people. So um, don't don't be afraid of hiring, even if they have less experience, right? They, they have less security experience. It's pretty easy for a security person to teach security to a developer, right. even though the uh, other way around is is really difficult, right? Right. Yeah, that's that's great advice. That's great advice. Attitude and aptitude and teaching the security bits, right? Yep. So let's get started on this journey of yours. You and I had some conversations before we started recording a little bit here. And I think one of the most impressive things about what you did that struck me as interesting was uh, your server architecture. So when you talk about this greenfield opportunity to build out your dream program, your server architecture is a little bit different, I think, than most folks. Well, and this would sound maybe more obvious to people that are really into like the, the DevOps world and Kubernetes world. But I think if you're starting something brand new right now, you really need to shoot for not having any virtual machines beyond maybe what's running your containers, right? And, and the reason I really strive for that is 
I hate having to deal with vulnerabilities. I hate you know patching servers and rebooting them and having to have processes to ensure that that happens. You know, Sunil Yu keeps preaching DIE, right? Mm -hmm. Distributed, immutable, ephemeral. Yes. So the immutable and ephemeral parts are really, really easy to achieve if you're using containers, but almost impossible to achieve if you're using like a traditional Linux or Windows server. You know, VM or physical server doesn't really make a difference in that case. Right. You build a server, even if that's automated, it's going to live for a year, two years, three years, maybe more, and then things are going to change on it. Whereas if you build a container, you build a container, you deploy it, there's a vulnerability, you build a new version of the container, you deploy it. But then you get you gain a lot of advantages um, beyond vulnerability management, right? Like even monitoring. Things like false positives are much lower because you've got your container, you know what's in it, you can alert if there's a new executable on it, right? Try doing that on a Windows server, right. receiving an alert every time there's a new library on it, right? That would generate a, a billion false positives every time there's like Windows updates running or, or anything right. like that. But it's feasible with containers, it's feasible with air quote serverless features in, in cloud environments. So I would totally strive for that. And ironically, at that fintech, I think the only server we had was a security tool called Forseti Security, great open source tool <laughs> for uh, monitoring GCP environments. And back then, they didn't have a version you could reliably run in uh, containers. I think that might have changed since then. So, you know, definitely nuke your VMs if you can replace them with something else. That's awesome. What a, what a modern world where you can get away with that. I'm trying to think of every shop I've been in and all the servers we relied on for all the things. And what a fantastic greenfield opportunity to be able to create an entirely serverless infrastructure. That's that's brilliant. Then you get to really take advantage of all the different services you have in AWS or GCP or even Azure, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you have an existing environment, I've seen a lot of companies move to the cloud, but they're kind of using it as like a big VMware, right? Okay, we had like eight data centers. Yeah. Now we don't have eight data centers, but we've got the same amount of virtual machines running the same applications right. in the cloud, right? So then- one, one big virtual data center, that's it, right? That's the difference. Right, so you, you've gotten rid of maybe some physical security concerns, but other than that, you didn't really change your, your architecture. And I'm not saying like it's easy to change an existing architecture, right. far from it, but I, when you're starting from scratch, you don't have any excuse to not do it. I love it. All right. So that covers servers, which it turns out there aren't any. We're going strictly with a container-based solution. How about PCs and Macs? How do you go about securing those? One thing about fintechs that's very difficult is there is data that's super critical and there is money, right? Mm -hmm. And so if people can move money and people can get access to social security numbers and things like that, you already have a, a like highly targeted environment. But when you start talking about data like social security numbers, some people will say like, oh, you need to have DLP. And I just feel like as soon as these critical pieces of data have made it to a laptop or like any kind of workstation, it's game over. Like someone will be able to exfiltrate it. Like I've never mm -hmm. seen, like DLP is really good at catching things that are, I would say, accidental policy violations, right? Like, oh, you didn't know you were not supposed to ask for people to send you their credit card number over email for whatever event that's happening, right? Yeah. You'll catch that. You're not going to catch someone really trying to leak that on purpose, right? Yeah. So to me, it's simply assume that these workstations will be breached. There's always going to be one that's breached at any point in time and do everything you can to avoid people being able to access that data from workstations. So that means, for example, if you're working on, let's say you're, you're a machine learning person, you're, you're making machine learning algorithms. I don't want you to well, real data on your own laptop to right. 
test from, right? So that might mean creating some kind of pipeline for testing where the data is on servers you don't have direct access to, but you're able to load models and you're able to consult the results, but you're okay. never able to get there. And so when you take these decisions, and I think it becomes pretty obvious that you won't be able to secure the workstations anyway, right? So you just do the bare minimum. So that means you want to be sure they're encrypted. You want to be sure they're patched. The browsers are up to date. And then your office suites and you know Adobe Reader type stuff is up to date. But I think beyond that, it's diminishing returns, right? Vulnerability management on laptops. If the OS is up to date, the browsers are up to date, and office type programs are up to date, everything else you'd find by doing like you know very complex vulnerability scanning is going to be very low impact, usually most of the time. Right. And it's doing things like letting people be local administrators on their machines, right? Like in a traditional environment, if you've got Windows and you've got Active Directory, we've tried to prevent people from being local administrators because, mm -hmm. first of all, there were a lot of vulnerabilities in Windows that you could only exploit if you were a local admin, mm -hmm. but also because there's things in memory that you can get to as a local admin, like service account credentials that can let you access other workstations or worse servers right. or even high-privileged accounts on the domain, right? There's still Kerber roasting and Mimicats and all that good stuff too, right? Exactly. But that's a problem. If Even if your users are not local admin, that's still going to be a problem. There's right. going to be a privilege right. escalation at some point or whatever. But if you're building a new environment, one thing you're not doing is going out and buying Active Directory and setting up domain controllers. You're not doing that. And right. therefore, you're not going to have these credentials in memory. So I think especially in a remote world, you want people to be able to self-support, do most of the stuff. Plus, most of the threats you would see would impact data the regular user has access to anyway, right? Like a user can run an app, even if they're not admin, right? Right. Like if you were blocking that, you're doing application whitelisting, which has nothing to do with whether they're local admin or not. Right, right, right. Um, so in a high security environment, I'd look at that before I even looked at things like preventing local admins or everything, right? So I'm really not a fan of DLP, really not a fan of like the super lockdown workstations, but I'm a big fan of locking down the data as much as possible, especially when it's critical. It's almost the VDI model, really, is what you're describing. Well, but you don't necessarily have a desktop that gets to it, right? You might have a VDI model if you have like a fat client application that you need to run that will need to have access to the data. But then yeah. your your virtual machine has all the same uh, vulnerabilities that right. you know a right. laptop might have, except at least it's not mobile, right? Like right. You, you don't have to worry about it getting stolen. You can maybe control internet access to it a little bit better. But it's more like, imagine... CICD, but for access to the data. Yeah, okay. Right? You need to test against that data that happens in a pipeline that yeah. you can give code to. That pipeline is is segmented away from the internet, doesn't have any kind of egress. Right, accesses code, basically. And then you get the data back. Well, not the data back, but the results on the data, right? And the data remains where it is, and you're, okay, okay, so we're, yeah, I get it. Yeah, exactly. So the company was acquired pretty fast, so we didn't get to fully build out all of these different things. But what we did spend a lot of time on was planning for how we encrypted some of the data in the cloud. And again, super easy to do things in the cloud yeah. uh, in a brand new environment because there's all these key management services, there's all these encryption services that you can leverage. And you can do really great things like, say, encrypt social security numbers in a way where all of your systems that should write the key have the key to encrypt, but they can't read. And then you control access uh, pretty tightly on the keys. You only need social security numbers to do 
I don't know, tax report at the end of the year. There's only one container that's going to be able to load these keys. Right. That also means you can do extremely good monitoring on when these keys are accessed, right? So we did spend a lot of time on that and, and built a very solid base for the future. You're solving everything at the application layer because you're controlling the application because it's a DevOps environment. That's, that's essentially the gist of it. And the infrastructure is a core part of it because you're building for a cloud vendor. And like, I wouldn't recommend trying to do early on is trying to make something that's going to be multi-cloud, right? Like if it's yeah. something that it's a SaaS service that you provide to people, they don't really care where you run it. Well, they might care like actually where, like in what country you run it, but right. they don't care if it's GCP or Amazon or Azure or whatever. Right. And if you stick with one, you'll be able to use all of the features they have, including, you know, the security features, things like key management, uh, automated generation of certificates, all, all that yeah. kind of good stuff, which if you start and right away you restrict, you restrict yourself to tools that work on multiple clouds, then it's just more complicated. You're increasing your attack surface, yeah. right? So you yeah. keep it simple. Pick one vendor. If in five years your, your company is worth like $3 billion and, and you want to mitigate the risk of an entire cloud vendor you know, disappearing or having extended downtime, you'll have the resources then to use two cloud vendors and, and, and kind of bridge the gap between two with the tools that are going to work for both. But I think for a new company, that's a dangerous mistake to make. That's a really interesting piece to this because I, you know, more and more key management comes up as like the most important thing, right? A lot of conversations I'm having these days, key management keeps coming up as the most important thing. Yeah. And you're saying, take full advantage of the native already there key management capabilities and and just, you know, develop your your pipeline on top of that. And that's contrary to a lot of advice, but it makes really good sense. Well, it, it, the tools that the cloud vendors have for security, they're almost never the tools with the most features. Right. But they're pretty often good enough to take you you know, 80% of the way, which means you might be fine using that for a few years, right? And in that right, case, right. the main advantage to it is all the access management remains within the cloud vendor, right? Like if, if you're only using GCP tools, then all access management is within GCP. That means you can have yeah. really good processes around reviewing right. who's got access to what. Whereas if you've got like five, six different systems used for managing secrets, managing the keys, blah, blah, blah. Well, then you, you need to have like, Access revalidation and automation right. to do that is going to be harder. Whereas if it's all in GCP, you can automate all of it. Same thing with uh, with AWS. So I think the same way about hybrid cloud. A lot of people talk about hybrid cloud like it's like the holy grail, right? Oh, we're going to run things internally when we want. And then these workloads will magically yeah. go to... And I feel like in 90% in of cases, it's just extra complexity. Whatever amount of money you think you're going to save by doing that, you're going to burn it on the complexity. And when it comes time to trying to really build something that's secured and that will be maintainable, then it's exponential, right? If you've got three it. cloud vendors in your own environment, it's not like four times harder. It's like 40 times harder. And you find yourself buying still more tools to try to manage the multi-cloud aspects of it. And now your key management is a shotgun blast of... Your, your attack surface keeps growing, right? Because security yeah. tools pretty often have high levels of access into your, your infrastructure or your data, yeah. right? Like it's... DLP is a great, great example, right? Either on, on laptops running with really high privileges or at the network level, you're you're funneling every piece of traffic in your network on one device. You're giving that device the keys to decrypt the traffic. And on top of that, you're giving like a regex to the attacker saying, this is the stuff we don't want to lose, right? Like what else could you want as someone trying to steal data? Right, right, right. Here's the keys to the kingdom and the map to get there. Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. Axonius has 
crossed the chasm, the first company to solve the cybersecurity asset management problem. Gartner has recognized cyber asset attack surface management chasm as a category in their hype cycle for network security 2021 report. Axonius gives its customers a comprehensive, always up-to-date asset inventory, helps uncover security gaps, and automates as much of the manual remediation as you want. Take a look at Exonius and give your teams time back to work on the high-value cyber initiatives they were trained to do. So you're doing this DevOps model, you're doing this, everything is code, but it's like everything is code, right? This is this is much bigger than infrastructure is code and managing everything through DevOps. You've, you've done some other tricks, and I know you and I talked a little bit about this before the show, but when you say everything is code, you mean it. Like what else have you done as code that most people haven't thought to do? Yeah, so so a lot of it still fits within infrastructure as code, right? So access management, for example. Why would your access management not be handled as code, right? Because if mm -hmm. a file is code, then you can have the same type of code reviews that you would have on code, but done for access, right? So for example, I need access to a GitHub repository. I'm going to add my name to a file, and then whoever's responsible for approving that will get the pull request and will approve it, and then my access is going to be provisioned then everything is in a nice like YAML file. Well, nice in YAML. I don't know. Some, some people might object to that, but <laughs> it is much better than 62 different directories, believe me, which you can then uh, use for to automate access reviews and all that kind of stuff, right? So that's access. But okay. things like you have new GitHub repos you want to create or anything that's in a SaaS, sometimes people don't think of that as infrastructure as code, but it still is, right? Your Google groups, you use Google Workspace and you use yeah. Google security groups to control access. Why aren't those managed as code? Why is someone going to like admin.google.com and adding someone manually when right. that could be done in a text file with a code review done to it? And the concepts we have here at Fleet, as well as with my previous fintech, is everything is marked down. At Fleet, it's because everything is open source. Almost okay. everything we do is open, right? Like our software is open source. Our security standards are open source. You can go on the Fleet website, look at our handbook, see how we secure like our laptops, how we secure Google Workspace, a bunch of that stuff. But even our internal policies are just open. They're out there for, for everyone to look at, kind of like similar to uh, what GitLab does. Yeah, okay. And at the previous company, not much was open, right? Like it's a, it's a fintech. There was not much to sure. be gained by publishing it. But we wanted everyone to work in the same way. So that meant doing things like we had templates for contracts. Those were in Markdown and they're in GitHub and there's a code owner on it and lawyers would approve PRs, right? Anyone in the company could find a typo in a contract and go and fix it. And But then the right people would approve that change to, to happen there. And then you get like a, this amazing audit log of everything that happened to these contracts or privacy policies because you've got version control. Yeah. Uh, whereas... I've seen many, many times working with contracts and legal departments where the draft version of a contract is Word file that gets emailed like 62 times and people mm. put their own comments in 62 separate versions of it. And then the file name is contract underscore final underscore final for real this time underscore Alan comments point two. Underscore Guillaume approved underscore final final no really, really exactly. final. Exactly. Like it's, it's completely impossible yeah. to keep track of. Whereas when it's just done as code, it's perfect. And then yeah. you can worry about the formatting later, right? right? You want to generate it as a nice PDF, you just do that from the um, from the markdown. So we had contracts, policy as code, 
at Fleet, all of our documentation is in Markdown. It's in our Git repos. Our policies are there. And I've just started adding our security policies to our website. Mm-hmm. So you'll mm-hmm. see some of those popping up in the next, um, I would say, four to six weeks. It's all Markdown. It all gets approved in GitHub, and then it gets published to the web on our website. Nice. So I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm reminded of the very first cloud project that I ever worked on. We were writing the security hooks for the CICD pipeline. And getting all the security code in place so that as code went through its journey, it got checked for security for various things, right? Some of them yep. were automated hooks. Some of them were call-outs to a human process that would call back in and, you know, the pipeline would continue to flow. And as we started crafting what we wanted to do for the hooks in the pipeline, the guys that built the pipeline said, yeah, we're going to process and run all this through the pipeline. That took my brain a moment to get that what I was building around the pipeline was, in fact, also the pipeline and flowing through the pipeline all at the same time. And then along comes APIs and documents and, you know, SBOMs and what's your security posture, all available from the pipeline directly. Digital signed SBOMs, you know, all of that. So you've taken all of that paradigm, but you've dragged the rest of the business into it as well. You've even got legal doing this now. How did you sell this to the business? So at that previous company, what was really interesting is I was hired essentially before the company even started operating, right? So it's really rare you'll see a startup with a security person on week one, right? So, right. but because it was a fintech, truly you know, greenfield, and it was hooked up to uh, payment. Well, was going to be hooked up to payment trails at that point. They just knew how critical security was going to be, but that came down to having a CTO and the other co-founders that really, really cared about having a culture of everyone works the same way. Everyone's going to work. Everything's going to be as code. Everyone's going to be able to delegate as well, right? Like, so the, the mm-hmm. culture needs to be that. Because you're a developer, it doesn't mean you, you can't make an edit on a security policy, right? And because I'm a security person, doesn't mean I might not fix a bug in the code, but the right people have to review that, right? So in a right. fintech, we had like two people reviewing every uh, every change, but we let anyone in the company contribute to code. So I think what really helped was that we really didn't want to have any silos. We had mm-hmm. teams, people's main responsibilities, but everyone was allowed to contribute back to anything. And that's just much easier to do when you have a single way of doing things. And then right. at, at Fleet, it's driven by the need for everything to be open, right? So it's it's always, it's already like that. And that also comes from the founders. So I didn't have to really convince people that much. What I did have to do was train people on using things like GitHub, right? Like training legal departments and, okay. and privacy people. Right. Lawyers on how version control in this new system works versus what they're used to in a document repository system, et cetera. Exactly. Which I would say had like a pretty good level of success with. Some of the tools are much easier to use now, right? Like things like GitHub desktop. You don't need to tell them, yeah. oh, here's the GitHub command line, the Git command line, and how you're going right. to use that with, right. uh, with GitHub. And I found that the concepts of source management can be a little bit confusing to people who've never done it before. Mm-hmm. But if you abstract 80% of the features they're never going to need, then it's fine. It got a little bit more complicated, you know, teaching them conflict resolution when multiple people were working on the same file. But right. after a few months, people were used to it. And I would say probably more productive than if they were using, you know, Word and worrying about the formatting and everything. So it's, right. it's still, a, it's still right. a win. And then it was a huge win from a compliance point of view. Because things like, oh, who reviewed this policy? And oh, this policy changed at that date. Did it get reviewed? No, we we don't have an email from the CEO saying, I have reviewed the acceptable use policy and approved it. He did it in GitHub, right? Like he literally approved the PR, right? So it, we never needed to have like out of band approval. So it's a big productivity win as well. 
Wow. This is amazing. All right. So now we've got everything as code, literally everything. We've got everything being managed at the software layer, right? You've got containers for everything. You've got no servers. You've got every department bought in. You've got your documents. You've got your, I'm assuming there's S-bombs and everything else, all the usual stuff mixed in there as well. But you now have this point where if everything is code, how do you get a handle on resilience? Because in a, in a traditional server world or even a VM world or even, a, you know, you know all the worlds we're describing. Yep. Like there's plenty of ways. We, we have lots of methods for testing resilience, proving resilience, verifying resilience, finding out it's not there and repairing it and fixing it and all the methodologies around that. If everything is code, that whole piece of the puzzle gets shaken up too. What did you guys do there? Well, so there's a small amount of things that you can't afford to lose, right? And it's important to have a really good handle on what these things are. And these are typically you know, the code itself. There's encryption keys and a few things like that, right? There might also be in your infrastructure things you can't afford to lose, like stupid things, right? Like, oh, I've got a VPN set up with that vendor and it uses this public IP that I reserve from AWS. And if I lose that IP, I'm going to need to call that vendor and, you know, get the change release form, and it's going to take two days before the VPN is back up and running, right? So you need right. to know exactly what these things are. And then you need to deal with either backups when it's something that can be backed up, or if it's something that's just, you know, infrastructure that's in the cloud, there's metadata you can place on those to be sure that they're not deletable, even if someone has like super admin access, and then you can monitor to be sure that these values stay configured. So that's one of the things we use that for SETI security tool I mentioned before, where we had specific projects in GCP that contain these things that should never be deleted. And we track the configuration that prevented deletion really, really closely, right? Because I'm not going to export the encryption keys from an HSM or a key management tool. Like the whole point of right. having it in there is that it's not exportable. But if you lose it, you know, you can't really afford to lose all the social security numbers of your clients if you're a bank, right? Like that probably right. is not a good move for my career if that happens, right? So it's making sure you've got a handle on those. And then everything else, just need to make sure that you can rebuild it really quickly. And if you have the code, you can probably rebuild it pretty quickly, but you need to prove that. So one of the things that we did was we deleted environments really often. So dev environments, pre-prod environments, deleted all the time just to prove that we could redeploy them, but also that make sure that everyone has made everything as code, right? So even in a dev right. environment where people have more access, they can try things manually. If okay. they know that their dev environment is getting nuked in six days, well, that's an incentive to be sure that everything is as code properly, right? And as you get yeah. closer to prod and they don't have access, then everything's going to be fine. And in the end, we could rebuild, except for those things that we could not afford to lose, we could rebuild everything in something like 30 to 40 minutes, right? That's that's in a worst case scenario on a brand new, brand new cloud environment. And so once you reach that kind of performance rebuilding, then you see if that fits your tolerance. But obviously, by using the cloud and using distributed things to begin with, your tolerance for minor issues is, is, is already much better than in a traditional environment, right? But as a company that deals with money and people's social security numbers, you're always thinking, and you should always be thinking about what is the real worst case scenario, right? Like I lived through um, NotPetya at a company where okay. everything got deleted and then you get into trouble. Like, we know we have backups for this, but the server with the indices of the tapes got wiped, right? So we don't have yeah. the index that lets us yeah. get to the tape. That's going to take like 40 hours. And then, oh, we don't have a domain controller, so we can't log into the firewall to blah, blah, blah. All these yeah. kind of things. Really think through the uh, worst case scenario, but it's much easier to do in a infrastructure as code environment right. than in a cloud right. environment. When you're, when you're building from the first place to be torn down and reinstantiated on the fly, 
you can you can scale that to everything can be torn down and reinstantiated. And then you well because you know your dependencies, right? In a enterprise environment, you know, company has been there for fifty years, got fifty thousand employees, sixteen data centers. You know, I've seen these binders of like, here's how we should turn things back on in what order, right? But that's right. that's always a best guess. I will tell you a true story. Years and years ago, when I was much younger in my career, when I was on the IT side of the house, started there in IT as well, joined a company that was big and established and already had a massive data center with all kinds of servers. And there was this one server off to the side and a little rack on its own. And literally, it just had a sign on it that said no. <laughs> That's very I was uh, like, tempting. What is that? Don't touch that one. Just know that's that's the that's the machine that is now you know the guy that built it is gone and has been for ten years and it's still running and just no, leave it alone. Don't touch it. Don't get near it. No, that's the no server. <laughs> I was like, let it survive. The no server goes down. Oh, that's awesome. All right, so we have covered everything is code. We have covered resilience, where you are literally just blowing stuff up and reinstantiating it. What a great way to do it. That that I mean, I'm thinking like, oh, ransomware. So what, right? <laughs> well, the, the, nuke the it from orbit and start again. Netflix started talking about, you know, chaos monkey. What, like ten years ago, twelve yeah, years ago? Fair enough. But it's getting very realistic for new companies to start implementing that stuff, or existing companies mm -hmm. in new environments, right? So it's not necessarily innovation, but it's more executing the things that we should have been doing all along because finally the stars are aligning and it's it's right. possible to do that. And then I think that working from home, like both of these companies, like Fleet is fully remote, international. We've got people everywhere. Yeah. We don't have an office. Previous company, same thing because it was a COVID era company created yeah. at the beginning of COVID. Lateral movement between laptops, right? Like what's that? Right. We're all at home. But why do we have lateral movement between laptops in an office environment, right? Like right. We, we should prevent that. Make it so every network drop is completely isolated from other laptops. Micro, micro segmentation. Yeah. Well, just the world, you know, micro segmented me away in my home office. So now right. I don't have to worry about uh, PS exec between Windows machines. Exactly. Exactly. You are your own VLAN. All right. So we're getting close to the end of the show here. What other innovations have you achieved in all this? What have we not covered? We've covered everything is code. We've covered resilience. We've covered literally everything is code, bringing the lawyers and everybody else in. We've talked about instantiation. We've talked about key management. We've talked about stay with one cloud. What else have you pulled off that we haven't discussed? I don't know that I would call it an innovation again, because it's more, you know, executing on things that we know we should be doing. But on a, in a brand new company, I think it was getting the product teams and business teams to do threat modeling from the beginning, mm. from the beginning of a company, right? So we're going to have this product, it's going to do credit or debit, and there's going to be virtual cards and Apple wallet, all these kinds of things. From the beginning, get them to at least identify the things that are going to be dangerous because new types of data are introduced or data that's already there, but that's super well protected will be used for a different purpose. And we had that from the beginning, right? So as a brand mm -hmm. new company, we had full threat models of our mobile app, our APIs, and in the entire development process, starting from the business analysts and product people, they would identify things that the security team needs to review or not, right? So, oh, we're we're adding a dark team to the mobile app. I don't think the security okay. team needs to review that. Right. Oh, we're going to add support for Face ID, so the sessions are going to last forever now. Well, okay, the security team probably needs to review that, right? right. Um, and, and getting them to flag that was a really effective way of getting a lot done in terms of security with a team of two. So delegate. I love it. And it's not, I, I love your point. I mean, it's a humble comment, but it's also, I, I get it. It's not really innovation. It's, it's, 
what should always have been. Yeah, ex- exactly. That's a great way to look at it. That's a great way to look at it. Although I think you get full credit for having done it despite. So one last question for you. I ask every guest on the show, what have you learned outside of cybersecurity that's helped you in cybersecurity? It wouldn't be a technical thing. It's more about how to approach things, right? So if you look at development is a good example, right? You, you try to iterate, mm-hmm. try to do things, you know, one at a time. Don't think about the the big picture too fast. But it's the same thing. Like I love driving cars on a track, right? You can't improve by three seconds per lap in one morning, right? But you can pick one corner. Like, okay, corner seven, I'm really bad at it. I'm just going to drive through the rest normal. I'm not going to look at the times, but when I get to corner seven, I'll be sure I'm really, really good at it. And then I'll move on to something else. And the reason that kind of thinking really helps me is because, like I told you, I started working in IT. I was 17, right? Like still in school. Well, I wasn't going to school, but I was working in theory, going to school. Right. And when I started really working in security, what affected me the most was always thinking about everything is crap, right? Oh, we just fixed like 17 things, but there's all, there's still this huge problem over there. What are we going to do about that? And I don't think you're going to last for very long in, in security if you're thinking like that. So it's essentially focusing on what you've improved and do look at the big picture when it's necessary. But once you're done, you know, just pick whatever you want to improve in the next three months and just focus on that, you know, razor sharp focus and don't worry about the rest and then worry about it when you have to. I love that. That's, that's wow. Track driving as a metaphor for solving security problems. And that ties into the whole burnout thing. If you do keep focusing on the big picture and all the things that are wrong, eventually you're just going to spin out and, and wipe out and, and not be on the track anymore. Yeah, exactly. And if you try to do too much at once, it, it's, it's no more better, right? Especially if you're in a enterprise environment that's huge, it doesn't even matter what you want to do. There's a limit to what the org can absorb, right? So you need to see ways you can improve that capacity to absorb change before you try to focus and try to ram down 62 security projects down the company's throat. It's not going to work, right? All right. Well, Guillaume Ross, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.